turn to Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23 this morning. So three things I want you to see this morning. We're going to look primarily at verses 17, 18, and 19. And three things I want you to see that Paul is praying, sorry about that, for the church in Ephesus. And it's three things that Paul's praying for them. Uh, by proxy, it's three things that Paul's praying for us. But it's also three things that we should be praying for each other. And so what are the three things that we see here? In verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So what is Paul praying here? He's praying that the church in Ephesus, he's praying that we would know God better. That we would know God better. And in verse 2, or excuse me, secondly, in verse 18, Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the second thing that Paul is praying for us, for the church of Ephesus, he's praying that we would know the hope to which God has called us, that we would know the hope to which God has called us. And lastly, in verse 19, he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, go down into verse 20 just a bit, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So thirdly, Paul is praying that we would know the power that God has committed to getting us to the hope that He has for us. So first, he prays that we would know God better. Second, he prays that we would know the hope that, to which He has called us. And thirdly, that we would know the power that He has committed to getting us to that hope that He has called us to. So to know God better, to know hope, and to know His power. So let's start there with know God better in verse 17. And I want you to understand, and, and this is something that now should you should be hearing in a repetitive cadence this morning, that the greatest pursuit that we could have in our lives is to know God better. The greatest pursuit that we could have in our lives is to know God better. A.W. Tozer would say that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And so we understand from what he is saying, what he understood was that there's no greater thing about us than what we think about God because what we think about God speaks to the knowledge that we have of Him and where that knowledge came from. Some people think wrongly about God because they have received false information that came from a place that God did not reveal Himself or came from a misinterpretation of where God did reveal Himself. Paul would write to Timothy and, and he would say, as he was kind of giving him final instruction, that he would say to, to keep careful watch over his doctrine and his purity. Over doctrine 
and purity. And there's this understanding that Paul was calling Timothy to know his God well in the way that he had revealed himself. We learned last week that God reveals himself in three very specific ways. What are those ways? He reveals himself through nature and through his word and most acutely through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there's no greater pursuit and no greater blessing than the pursuit and the attainment of knowing God better. Turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, again, uh, just a couple pages there to the right in your Bible. Paul writing in verse number 8. And what does Paul say about knowing God? He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And listen to this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what does Paul say? Paul says that knowing God carries with it such surpassing worth. I mean, under like gr- grapple with that a minute. Is there anything in this life that we would say is of such surpassing worth? In other words, there's no way that we can really put a price tag on it. It's so beyond worth that if we had everything that was of value in the whole world collected together and could say that it was ours, that knowing God was still of greater worth, right? If you had all the money in In Scrooge McDuck's bin, it's still not enough. Knowing Christ is still of greater worth than that. Let's let's make it a little more real to ourselves since, to my understanding, based on the offerings given in this church, none of us have access to Scrooge McDuck's bin, all right? And that's not, I'm just making a statement there. Knowing Christ is of greater worth than the best marriage you could ever hope to have. Knowing Christ is of greater worth than your kids growing up and being all that they can be in any sphere of life. Knowing Christ is of greater worth than reaching that highest place that you can attain in your work force and your professional field. Knowing Christ is of greater worth than having back all the moments that you failed so that you could try again. Having, knowing Christ is of greater worth than anything you could ever possibly hope for in this life. Knowing Christ is worth more. Knowing Christ is worth more than the deepest friendship that you could ever have with another person on this life. Knowing Christ is worth more. 
That's why Paul can say, I count it all as loss. And in the Bible, you have to deal with the alls. Is it all without exception or all without distinction? And here it is all without exception. Paul is saying, I count everything, everything without exception. There's nothing that rises above this mark to say that it could trump uh, knowing Christ. Nothing rises above that. Nothing comes before that. Nothing has the precedence that it needs to have in my life beyond knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is above all things. In fact, I could say that I could lose everything else in this life. And if I knew Christ, it was enough. And that brings it to an even greater level, doesn't it? That means that knowing Christ is not just worth more than having the best marriage that you could ever have. It means that knowing Christ is better even if you lose your marriage. Knowing Christ is not just of greater value than your kids growing up and accomplishing all of their dreams. Knowing Christ is of greater value so that even if you were to lose your children, knowing Him is still greater. Knowing Christ is of greater value so that even if you lost the deepest, most meaningful relationships that you've ever had in this life, if you lost your job, if you lost your profession, if you lost your ability to walk, to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to, to think, knowing Christ is still of infinitely more value than all of those things. That's a difficult thing to say, isn't it? And yet you will find, and I have found, that some of the people that are the most in love with Jesus are the ones who have lost those things and found Paul's words to be true. Notice that that's even what he connects all this to. What does he say? He says, he says that I've counted all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he comes down in verse 10 and he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share what? His sufferings. That it's in suffering that we find out just how much value we place on knowing Christ. It's in suffering that we find just how much value we place on our relationship with God. And so we find that we must content ourselves not in anything else but in Christ. And yet if I have to be honest this morning, I have to say that that's not true of me all the time. I'm not content in Christ all the time. In fact, probably I'm not in content in Christ most of the time. I content myself with knowledge of so many lesser things. Maybe I'm not alone. You see, we are constantly acquiring more knowledge of so many other things. But here, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything as loss, as rubbish, that I may know Him, that I may gain Him. 
And so that's why Paul is praying for us and he's praying for the church in Ephesus that we may be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him that we would know God better because we are constantly acquiring more knowledge in lesser things. Think about it, more knowledge in our jobs, in our profession, always uh, trying to find the the, the things that designate that knowledge with new certifications and qualifications and titles and raises that go with them, right? We, we engage in that rat race and we engage in that process of acquiring that knowledge so that we can climb that ladder and get to that place. But what is it all for? What is it all for? So that a little after the age of 60... You can retire, and you'll pack up all your little stuff in a little box, and you'll turn in your keys, and you'll take your little name plaque off of the desk or off of the door or out of the place, and what happens? It is only a matter of time before no one remembers your name, and all the knowledge that you gained will mean nothing. Squat. And I say that in love to you this morning. Why? Because you need to understand that your pursuits in this life, if they are not about God and His kingdom and His Christ, then they ultimately add up to nothing. So you may say, well, fine, I'll have my name on the building. Then no one will forget about me. Oh, they will. Because how are you getting out of that rat race? You're probably going to have to sell the place or turn it over to your kids who don't have the same vision as you do. And eventually someone's going to come along and either it's going to die or someone's going to buy it and put their name on it. You're going to be the man, make a name for yourself or be the woman, build a legacy. So what? You can't take it with you. You cannot take it with you. But what did Jesus teach his disciples through the lesson of the dishonest manager in Luke? He says this guy went about trying to gain friends for himself by dishonest means, by filthy lucre, by the riches of this world, so that he could have a place to be welcomed in on earth. Jesus turned that around. He said, you use filthy lucre. You use earthly riches. You use the pursuits of your work and the things that you're doing to use the money and the gifts and the talents and the things that God's given you to win friends in this life so that they'll welcome you in eternal life, right? Not just so you can have buddies, but so that you can lead people to Christ. So that when all of this is gone and the moth and the rust destroy and the thieves break in and steal and you've laid up for yourself treasure in heaven where the the moths and the rust do not destroy and the thieves do not break in and steal. So that there will be people there who are welcoming you into the eternal home because you didn't live your life for your own gain but lived it for the kingdom of God. Now hear me, I'm not saying that your work is wrong. I'm not saying that that you shouldn't make money. I'm not saying that you shouldn't build a legacy, but in all of your working, in all of your gaining, in all of your building, let it ultimately be for the kingdom of God. 
and not for your own name. Let God use what He has done in you to make Himself famous, to make His name glorious. And so don't be anxious, but trust the Lord and build the kingdom. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Jesus speaks to this very thing. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, He says to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. And that's just interesting, right? That God would say, who can add to their stature? And and he says, and you can't even do as small a thing as that. Well, I will tell you as a vertically challenged person that uh, I have tried my whole life to add a cubit to my stature and it's never worked. And Jesus is saying, if you can't do as small of a thing as that, what is he saying? He's saying that I am so different than you. I stand in a place so far beyond you that the things that, that are impossible for you are nothing for me. If then you are not able to do as small as a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, we spin our wheels, we spin our wheels, we spin our wheels. And God is saying, don't you know that I will take care of you? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be wearied. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And so Jesus is calling us to this different orientation in our life. He's saying the world is worried about these things, and you should be marked by something different. And what is that difference? We should be marked by rest. We should be marked by trust that we have a God who will take care of us. And so we work not to toil so that we can gain. We work for what? The glory of God. Why? Because who made you, church? God made you. And what else did God make? All things. And why did God make you in all things? For His glory. And why do things work the way that they do? Because God said so. So why should you work for the glory of God? Because God says so. That's your purpose, to do all things for His glory. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you say, let it be all for the glory of God. Amen? So don't be like the rest of the world. In verse 31, what does he say? Instead, 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 what? Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. We sang it this morning. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
And so if your pursuit is for the things of this world, if it's for gaining worldly knowledge so that you can climb the ladder, so that you can accumulate for yourself money and things and possessions and accrue, I'm going to forget that word, and praise from men, it's all for nothing. At the end of the day, it's a big pile of junk. But there is a different way to live, a greater way to live, a way of living that is living for the glory of God in your pursuit of knowledge of Him, who He is, and what He has done. Build the kingdom. Mark 8.36 says you can gain the whole world and still lose your own soul. And so in all of your working, in all of your toiling, you could get everything that you want. Remember Romans chapter 1 that we read last week. And what did we say? The most fearful thing in the world is when God turns us over to our own desires. And so you may pursue those things and say, hey, it's going well for me. It's going well for me. It's going well for me. And as you get further and further and further from living from the, for the glory of God, God may eventually just turn you over to those desires. You may gain the whole world. You may actually do it. You can actually do it. It's why in the Bible it says, do not envy the rich. Do not envy the powerful. Why? Because in their pursuit of those things, God has turned them over to those things. And eventually those things will be their very condemnation. Now, does that mean there's no such thing? As a godly, rich, wealthy person? No, it doesn't mean that. Are there those who God has blessed with the gift of riches and with wealth and with wisdom in business who can build wealth? Yes. But why has God given them, the, them those gifts? Is it so they can build their own kingdom? No. Can I, do I need to answer that one for you this morning? Is it so they can build their own kingdom? No. It's so they can build the kingdom of God. Does that mean we shouldn't enjoy the good things of this earth? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the intention of the heart is what matters in these things. And why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you building what you're building? Why are you pursuing what you're pursuing? And are you pursuing all these other things and being content with your knowledge of the Lord just scratching the surface? I know I can find myself in that place. And so we need to be reminded that we need to find our identity in Christ and not in our work. But it's beyond a work. It's beyond money, isn't it? You see, we get to know God by getting to know Christ. He came so that we could know the Father. And we must strive for deep personal relationship with Him. And yet, is that the deep personal relationship that we're most often striving for in our lives? Or are most of our lives marked by striving for deep personal relationships, trying to get to know other people until we can call them our best friends and, and have that place? And if you don't have a best friend, you must just be, you know, not with it. 
You've got to have that best friend. You've got to have someone. Or it's a marriage relationship. It's, a, it's an outside of the marriage relationship. We pursue relationships with people. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should not pursue those relationships. But here's what happens. We pursue those deep personal relationships with other people. And we settle for superficial knowledge of God. Even though he has put himself on display, right? We see those people and it's like, oh, if they could just be my friend, they're, they're awesome. I want to be their friend and I'm going to do whatever it takes to be their friend and I'm going to reorient my life so that I can be their friend and they can call me their friend. And there are people that live their lives obsessed with this kind of a pursuit and yet settle for superficial knowledge of God even though he's put himself on display. There's people that don't want to be your friend. And you'll spend your life trying to gain their friendship. And yet the God of the universe has put himself on display. We read it in Isaiah 65 last week when he said what? Here I am. Here I am. The God of the universe is putting himself on display through nature, through his word, and through his son. We need to know God better. And Paul is praying that we will. We need to pray for each other that we'll know God better as well. Think about it. You see a movie. You're watching the Olympics. Who, who's that actor? I don't know. Siri knows. Google it. That's, those are words that happen in my house all the time. Right? That Olympic athlete. Oh, when, who are they? Where did they come from? And what do we do? We go, we, we go and we're going to Google all the time to gain more knowledge, to learn more things, to learn all about this. And there are people in this room this morning that know more about some of the Olympic athletes, that know more, forgive me, about Michael Phelps than they do about Jesus Christ. We know, about, we know more about Michael Phelps' pursuit of gold than Jesus Christ's pursuit of us. And that's sad. It's sad. We know more about TV, movie, and sports celebrities who are constantly trying to hide themselves from us than we do the creator of the universe who's standing there saying, here I am, won't you come? Come, my beloved, come. Why do we pursue these relationships? Well, because inherently we know that knowing someone well who still also knows you and still also loves you is a deeply satisfying joy. It is. And I'm, again, don't hear what I'm saying and miss the gift of God in those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue each other in deep personal relationships. But if we're pursuing deep personal relationships with other people at the expense of pursuing knowing God and knowing Him in deep personal relationship, then that's out of balance in our lives. Are you with me? I've got to give you the extreme on one side. Don't, don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't, don't make money. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't pursue relationships with other people. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't let those things become idols in your life to where you are pursuing those instead of God. 
where those become a means to themselves. And we elevate the good to the God. Are you with me? There is something about knowing someone well who knows you and still loves you. It's a deeply satisfying joy. And we can find that in marriage and in close friends. But let me tell you that those relationships, as deep and as personal and as caring and as loving as they could ever possibly be, are still a shadow, are still a shadow of the deeply satisfying joy that it is to know God and to be known by Him and to be loved by Him. But the desire we have to know and be known is a desire that can only ultimately be fulfilled in relationship with God the Father, through our connection with Jesus Christ the Son, through the Holy Spirit. And this is the beautiful key. As Christians, we don't just get to know about God in facts and figures. We get to know Him personally. We have a God, church, who is personal. We have a God who entered into our time and space, who knows your name, who knew you before you were born, who formed you in the inward parts of your mother's womb, who called you by name before your parents did, who knew you before your parents did, who knew you before anyone else in this world and loved you before anyone else in this world, who intended you when sperm and egg came together before they united, God intended you. That's why you're here. It doesn't get more personal than that. And this is a far more satisfying and exciting joy and relationship than any other relationship that we can have or anyone that we could get to know. There's a quote from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, that I just want to read to you this morning. J.I. Packer says, We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God Himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. Amen? So the greatest pursuit and the greatest joy we could ever have in our lives is to know God better. And my prayer this morning is may we know Him better through His Word and through His Son deeply and personally and find satisfying joy. Amen? Secondly, and, and we're actually going to only go to point two this morning, 
Paul prays that they would know greater hope. Verse 18. He prays and he says what? That having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, they may know what is the hope to which God has called you. What are the riches of His inglorious inheritance in the saints? You see, the Bible really is about hope. It starts out with hope in Genesis 3.15 as the pro-evangeline comes out and, and God says that there will be one who is struck by the serpent in the heel, but he would then what? Crush the head of that serpent. It's this gospel message that begins in the very beginning of the Bible and it goes out and that scarlet thread is then woven through all of the Old Testament until we get to Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the one, the, the, the male child who would come through the woman, who would be bruised, uh, who would be struck by the serpent, and then who would crush the serpent's head. The Bible is a message of hope. And in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter assumes that we as believers would have that hope planted in our hearts. 1 Peter 3.15 calls us to a greater calling. He says that in your hearts we must honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then what? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter's assuming that as believers that we would be walking in hope in such a way that it, other people would recognize it. Why? Because we're called to be a people of hope. We're called in hope, to hope, for hope, because of hope, which is Christ. He is our hope. And we're called to give a defense for the reason of the hope that is in us. Our faith is based on and steeped in hope, but our hope is not like hope in the world, is it? You see, hope in the world sounds a lot like a Disney movie. My kids put on Pinocchio the other day, and I used to love watching Pinocchio, but I had not seen it in years, and I was cringing Every time Jiminy Cricket opened his mouth, I was cringing every time the Blue Fairy was talking about how good Pinocchio had to be if he wanted to be a real boy. And I was just like, oh, oh, oh no, dear God, karma is being taught to my kids through <laughs> Pinocchio. And, and, and it is. Why? And, and Jiminy Cricket, right? This is the hope of the world. I wish I may, I wish I might, find the wish, I wish tonight, right? As he wishes on a star. And that is all hope is to the world. It's this far off thing where we were kind of like casting out nets, hoping that we might get something. Church, that's not the kind of hope that is in the Bible. It's not the kind of hope that we are called to as believers. Rather, the hope that we are called to is a locked down assurance. It is a locked down assurance. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, the preacher preaches and he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There is an assurance in Christian hope that is different from the hope that the world 
talks about. It is a confident assurance. But where does this confident assurance come from? And why is it a confident assurance? Well, there's a reason that Paul prayed that we would know God first and then prayed that we would know the hope to which he has called us. If you were ever bullied as a kid or picked on, hopefully you knew that you had somebody in your home who was going to stand up for you, right? Hopefully you had a daddy who you knew was going to stand up for you and if it came down to it, protect you. And if you didn't have that kind of a daddy, then know that in God, that's the kind of father that he is. But as kids, what, what, what are kids famous for, for saying to each other? My daddy can beat up your daddy. Right? Well, my daddy's stronger than your daddy. My dad can do... And I'm, I'm scared of the day my kids find out just how much of a wuss I really am. Right? But right now I'm enjoying the ego boost. Right? They, they think that I'm strong. They think that I can just throw them up all the time. They think that I can just, you know, lift them up to this place or that place or do all these things because they, they know their dad. And in their world, their dad is, is strong compared to them. Right? A confident assurance of hope comes from knowing who our God is. When we know who God is, when we know his works as recorded in his book from Genesis to Revelation, when we understand his works that are recorded for us so that we might know him, we begin to have hope. Because when we understand that the same God who created the universe, the same God who did the mighty works in Egypt, the same God who led his people to the promised land, the same God who rescued them from all of the nations and brought them out of captivity again and again and again, is the same God who called us, is the same God who sent his son, is the same God who resurrected his son, is the same God when we understand that that that's the same God who called us. Suddenly we begin to hope. Why? Because we begin to know our God and understand who He is and what He has done. And so the Bible doesn't really plead with us to hope. It doesn't really plead with us to hope. Rather, it commands us to hope. It commands us to hope in a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And so David even writes in Psalm 42 verse 5, and he begins to do something that we are all called to do. He preaches to himself. Psalm 42 verse 5 is this beautiful display of David preaching to himself. And what does he say? He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? What does he say? 
Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. And so, we look here in Ephesians chapter 1, and we see that Paul is praying that we would have hope. But is he casting out a net, hoping that he can reel something in for the church in Ephesus and for us? Should we pray for each other that we could have hope in a way where we're kind of like casting out, hoping that we can kind of, we're like, I wish this happens. I kind of, I'm, you know, I'm hoping it comes together. No, we're throwing that out because we know that hope is ours. It is ours in Christ Jesus. Why? Because in love before the foundations of the earth, He predestined to adopt us as sons. And then He sent His Son to make sure that that happened. And then He sent His Holy Spirit to apply that work to our life and to seal us. We have a God who sits in the heavens and the Bible says He does what He pleases. And who can thwart Him? No one. Why? Because He is the God of all the universe. He is great and He is mighty and He is powerful. Which is what Paul leads into. That we would know God. And in knowing God, what is Paul praying for? What he knows will happen when we know God. Hope. Oh, you mean... Paul is praying something that is very theological in nature. It's very logical. It, it goes in sequence. It actually is something that we're guaranteed. So he's not just casting stuff out. He knows that this is a confident assurance that if God's people will begin to know him, that they will begin to hope in him. And if they will begin to hope in him, they will begin to experience his power. They will know his power. He's called us to hope in hope, hope in who He is, that He is able to do what He has set out to do, which is to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. But hope does not come naturally for us. And so with David, we have to preach to ourselves, hope in God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Yet again, I will praise Him. Has praise left your lips? Are you walking in a place in your life right now where praise is the farthest thing from you? Then you need to dig into the Word of God to begin to know God more so that you can begin to hope and preach to yourself to hope in God and know that you will yet again praise God. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 6.19, we're going to close with this this morning. This hope is personified. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of this for Paul is connected in that first part of what we read last week. In verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give. Jesus 
is the one who shows us the Father because He was sent by the Father and He's the one that is the anchor of hope for our souls. He's the one that grounds us when all other ground is sinking sand. Hope in God this morning. Hope in Christ. And know that He is the one who is the anchor for your soul. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll begin to deal with the power that comes next. Let's pray. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hope in your Son, even as we come to the table this morning to be reminded of his work on our behalf, his body broken, his blood shed, that as we feel the grains in our hands and as we taste the sweetness of the wine on our tongue, let us remember that we have tasted and seen that you are good, that there is no sweeter love than the love of God expressed to us in Christ Jesus. May we remember this morning that we have an anchor for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. May you come this morning and feed on Christ in your hearts by faith. Amen. Amen.